Do you love Uncover from CBC Podcasts? What's your favorite season? Which one did you skip? What do you want to hear more of? Help us make Uncover even better by taking our listener survey now. Visit cbc.ca slash uncover survey to make sure your voice is heard. This is a CBC Podcast. The following episode contains difficult subject matter, including references to sexual assault. Please take care. I'm Kathleen Goldhar. This is Crime Story. Every week, a new crime with the storyteller who knows it best. I read uh, Helen's story on the news, and it immediately struck me as way out of line. And um, I wrote a letter to Helen four days later asking if she would consider telling her story. Because even with the sparest, sparest details on the record, and there was so little, it just seemed so out of line with other sentences. And in fact, it turns out it really was. It was way out of line. When I was a kid, I remember watching a movie called The Burning Bed. It starred Farrah Fawcett as an abused wife who, after years of enduring physical and emotional violence, sets her sleeping husband's bed on fire and kills him. The movie tells the story of Francine Hughes and her groundbreaking case. It was one of the first cases that uses what was called the battered women syndrome as a defense. And a jury found Hughes not guilty by reason of temporary insanity. Hughes's case made it possible for abused women to defend themselves, even if in the moment they weren't facing immediate threats of violence. But this isn't the case for all women, and certainly it wasn't for Helen Nasland. For almost 30 years, Helen and her three sons lived in fear of her husband, Miles. Isolated on a small farm in Alberta, the family was held hostage to his outbursts and his anger and his violence. And then one night in 2011, Helen had enough. She shot Miles to death while he slept. Six years later, Helen Nasland was sentenced to 18 years in prison, one of the longest sentences ever given to an abused woman in Canada. The Globe and Mail's Jana Pruden tells Helen's long and complicated story in her podcast, In Her Defense. Jenna, welcome to Crime Story. Thanks so much for having me on. It's so nice to have you here. And I think we need to start with talking about the life that Helen led before all of this happened. So can you tell me the abuse that she faced, what her family suffered during those years? Yeah, I think um, it's fair to say that Helen and her sons endured on the highest end of the spectrum in terms of abuse. There was physical abuse, emotional abuse, certainly sexual abuse of Helen, extreme control, degradation, and uh, numerous life-threatening incidents directed at Helen and at her sons. And the fact that she was isolated on this farm in a community that was small played a lot into her and her family sort of feeling quite stuck, even though that doesn't discount that women in big cities also feel stuck. But for Helen, that was an added issue for her, correct? Yeah, we do know that living in a rural area is 
particularly complicating for people who are surviving domestic violence. Um, even if you call the police, response times can be very, very long, and you are isolated. You don't necessarily have the kind of daily contact with neighbors when you're living on a farm. And um, also, your tie to the rural community, to your land, to the animals that are there are all complicating in terms of getting away. There's something that Helen said to me once that has always stuck with me, that there was always something or someone she loved at the farm. So even if she was away, if she was at work, if she was in town, there was always something at the farm that she wanted to protect and that she knew could be hurt if she didn't go back there. Because without her, that farm really wouldn't run. I mean, she you told us about her life. It was a lot of work. Yeah, I think that's something that, that I have thought about in a new way in this podcast is actually abuse by work that um, Miles was using Helen and his sons almost like slaves and that in addition to the other forms of abuse that they were all suffering, they were being worked into the ground, essentially. So there's no way the farm would have survived for sure. And there was, Helen was doing an amount of work that, in fact, I think at times she barely survived. Yeah. And they were isolated, but Helen had a job and there was a community around her. And you do start to realize that people had become uncomfortable around Miles and Helen, to say the least. So what did people in her community understand was happening, obviously, before he was killed and, and everything came out? Mm -hmm. I think like in a lot of situations where there's domestic violence going on, people do sense something, that something is not right. And in this case, through the years, I think it got more and more obvious. People saw in Helen how quiet she was, how um, she didn't speak unless she was spoken to. They could, they sometimes saw bruises. Neighbors, there was one neighbor who told me about being able to hear Miles yelling across the farm, like from her farm. So, yeah. you know, Far. yes, um, kilometers away. Um, there were people, lots of stories going around about Miles's use of guns and that people would see him twirling the gun on his finger. It was well known that he would hold guns to the heads of his children or point guns at the boys or at Helen. Um, so it was obviously a pretty severe situation and people did have, I think, even from the glimpse that they had was severe and nobody knew actually the extent of what was going on. So people were concerned, but as is very common, no one really knew what to do about it. And I think a lot of people were afraid that if they did say something or do something, that they would make it worse, that would make it more dangerous for Helen and for the boys. So they're in this horrible situation for 30 years, is that correct? Um, 30 years, if we count the period in which uh, Miles and Helen start dating, we get close to 30. They were married for 27 years. And her children are being abused and her life is hard. And can you tell us about the night that she finally said this was enough? Mm -hmm. So it's um, harvest, September long weekend, Labor Day long weekend, 2011. It's a very stressful time in farming because that's the period you're trying to get the crops off and really all of your work for the whole year either pays off or can come to nothing. They were having severe financial problems and had been for several years. And Miles was suffering a number of 
health problems. He had diabetes that he was not treating. Um, he'd had a head injury in a bar fight that seemed to have had an impact on his behavior. And I think things were getting worse and worse, and things were obviously escalating. That weekend, um, Helen was working, trying to bring in the crops, and we know that a tractor broke down. Miles was drunk. He was furious. He was throwing wrenches at her. At some point, she went into the house to make dinner. He swept the whole dinner onto the floor and uh, said it wasn't fit for a dog. And he did threaten her, promise her that she would pay for the broken tractor. And that night, while Miles was sleeping, um, he was shot in the back of the head, killed instantly as he slept. His body was put into a truck toolbox and hidden in the bottom of a slough um, or a pond uh, on a nearby property. Then uh, Helen and her sons reported Miles missing, and he was missing for um, six years. What did people think happened to Miles in those six years? This is an interesting aspect of the community, you know, everybody knowing that something was going on and not knowing what to do about it. When Miles disappeared, everybody knew he didn't just disappear, and nobody did anything about it. And nobody particularly cared. You you can hear in the podcast, you know, a number of people who tell me basically, yeah, you know, I just didn't really give it much thought, didn't care what happened. And I think to some extent, there was a certain form of country justice that no one was overly concerned about it. And no one was really going to do anything about it until um, ultimately, uh, the police began investigating again, based on um, some comments by her her middle son. Yeah, I mean, that, to me, the tragedy is so extended by that, because I want you to talk about what happened in, with her and her kids. You know, she they have to live through the years of Miles. We'll get to, you know, some of the suspicions of what actually happened that night. But she does end up getting kind of turned in by one of her children. So can you tell me what happened there? Yeah, um, Helen's middle son, Daryl, who had previously made statements to the police like they all did, sort of implying that his father had gone off and killed himself or maybe that these guys from the city that had beaten him up at the bar, that incident I referred to, that maybe they'd done something to him. So that was sort of the story that the police had for years. There wasn't really any searching for him, <laughs> um, very different from many other missing persons cases. And then Daryl did go in and give a statement in which he said that um, his mother had killed Miles and that they had his brothers and him had disposed of the body and the car and the guns. Do we know why her son turned on her like that? There's there's a few theories about that. There's a theory that Helen has um, and that some people have shared with me that he was facing his own trouble with the law and he does ad has admitted that he has a, a drug problem and he does have a criminal record and that he used it to get out of that trouble. Um, he told the police that it was because he felt, you know, that it was weighing on him. Um, I'm not exactly sure. I never was able to speak with Daryl. Daryl didn't speak with me. But one thing I do know is that um, for Helen and Neil, 
Uh, that's her youngest son and the only other son that was home with her at the time. It was her, Neil and Daryl. The oldest son, Wes, was at his own house. Um, it was really weighing on them. It was weighing on their consciences, I think. And I do believe it would have come out um, sooner rather than later. You know, I know that Helen, I don't think she could have kept the secret too much longer than she did, to be honest. You've been covering domestic violence for like 25 years. What do you know about the way a family copes after the violence has stopped? Like what kind of an impact does it have? What kind of a tale does it have with this family? Because it did come across in your podcast that all the sons were quite angry. One of them does talk to you and he's, I mean, I've held my breath every time he came on. I mean, he's so aggressive. I mean, it's really amazing to hear a voice like his. You rarely hear that. Um, but tell me about what you know from the work that you've done about what domestic violence does do to a family even after they've escaped the violence. I think, um, you know, not just from my own work, but anyone who has had domestic violence in their life or in their family, which is very, very many of us know that the impacts truly can last for generations. They do last for generations. Um, the son you're referring to in the podcast is Wes, Helen's oldest son. And he's a really, he's a really interesting person, a really one of the most intense and probably profound interviews I've ever done. You know, he is someone, on one hand, he says that um, he could kill a thousand people and he, he wouldn't really care. Um, but yet he's very, very astute about the emotional effects, I think, of abuse. Mental abuse and torture and shit changes your brain. It just kind of changes how you perceive shit. For all you fucking know, sadness could be love and love could be anger and anger could be fucking hate. You, you, you have no clue. It's like you're colorblind for feelings. There's things that he says like that that are that are very intense and they're very scary and they're very disturbing. Um, but then he's also very emotionally aware of how growing up with his father has affected him. And I think that some of the ways that he expresses the effects of abuse are, you know, some of the most profound ways that I've ever heard that described in terms of the way that it can change your personality and I guess the work that you have to do try to not succumb to that kind of behavior yourself. Yeah, I was taken, like he talked about it, rewiring his brain. Yeah. yeah. But his love for his mother is very clear. And in a weird, it's almost violent, but it's there. Yeah, I think the boys, um, they, they care so much for their mother. And I think they all have spent the last 27 years um, or I guess the kids aren't that old, but they've they spent um, their lives all protecting each other and trying to keep each other and also themselves safe. And I think the weight of that and the effect of that on a person, of course, is extremely profound. And, you know, one of the things that that we talked about in making the podcast was there is sometimes this um, – you know, seeing this as an issue behind closed doors. And even that sometimes when, when there is a domestic homicide, a woman dies, her children die, but we still kind of think of that as, oh, a family issue, and somehow she put herself in that situation. But we know that there is a massive link between um, domestic violence, intimate partner violence, and mass 
murders. I also cover news. I covered the Port of Peak shootings. I covered the stabbings on the James Smith Cree Nation, two of Canada's worst um, mass homicide events. And those both were perpetrated by people with long histories of domestic violence. And so that's something that was really important to us was to really make clear this isn't just an issue between a husband and wife if people are tempted to think that it can't affect them. And I think that's something that we saw with Miles in terms of him being a ticking time bomb is not only dangerous to Helen, not only to his kids, not only to, for instance, Wes's family and and his kids, but also to police, to neighbors, to random people, because we know that that's the possibility when someone who's engaging in this kind of violent behavior um, becomes homicidal, which I believe Miles was. But the police do not approach Helen that way. The police even seemingly ignore what is clearly a a domestic violence situation. And we hear incredibly, you have an interview tape with the police and Helen. The the suffering is very important to consider, right? And from, from what I know, and from what I understand, you were suffering living with, with living with Miles and living in that home. I think you did what you had to do because it was necessary. It was an escape. The suffering had to end. How do the tell me about how the police uh, interrogate Helen? How the police approach uh, the situation once they discover Miles's body in the pond? It's clear that he didn't commit suicide. Um, that something happened. So, so how do they approach this? Yeah, I think the interrogation is um, is really interesting and powerful um, to be able to hear it. You know, the police do not do anything wrong per se. And I think a lot of police officers would see that as a very successful interrogation. There were no breach of charter rights. And in the end, um, she confessed to murder and they were able to lay a charge or she confessed and they were able to lay a murder charge. Um, I think what what I see in it, however, is that even though they, they do know there was abuse happening, they have people who witnessed abuse, physical abuse, um, that they, while they may say that they're sympathetic and they understand and, you know, they repeatedly say something had to be done and you were protecting your family, um, which is, in fact, the battered woman defense or the battered spouse defense, but it's really only used as a tool to get a confession. It's not really used in a legitimate um, spirit of, is this really domestic violence self-defense? And some of that may have to do with what was done to the body after, which looks, um, you know, not great. I think everyone agrees that that's not... Yeah, the outcome would have been very different, I suspect, if she had gone straight to the police right after. But you well, talked to her about that. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that is a question. Yeah. That is what some people think. And of course, this does look kind of guilty, I guess, to dispose of the body, to lie about it. Um, and that's fair. I accept that. But I think there's, there's a lot in the interrogation where we can see that the idea of her being a battered woman is is used sort of against her as a lever in the same way that the fate of her youngest son, Neil, in particular, is used against her as, as a lever. And there's one part in the interrogation that has always really stuck out to me, and it's where um, one of the police officers is talking to her about that there was a neighbor that witnessed abuse. Speaking to people like Phil and learning from an outsider's perspective what he saw and, and I know guys like Phil aren't there 
at 3 o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday night or at 8 o'clock in the morning on a Thursday to see exactly what's going on. He just sees, he sees when you and, uh, and uh, Miles are sitting around the kitchen table playing cards. Miles gets too drunk, calls you a bitch or whatever, and then tries to take a round out of you. And that moment really sticks out to me because I think about that language and how belittling that is to say, you know, taking a round out of you over a game of cards. <laughs> These aren't two hockey players having a scrap on the ice. What you're talking about is a man who's twice the size of his wife, physically assaulting her while they're playing cards and with people around with people around and you know when you look at someone like Helen who's coming into that interrogation having never spoken about her experience in really any way she's been keeping it a secret she doesn't know what other people would think about it she doesn't even fully understand what parts of it are abuse or not you know a lot of people have a hard time wrapping their head around the control as abuse, even, you know, unwanted sex. <laughs> is that abuse if you're a husband and wife? Some people, I know that it is, but many people don't. Is having a loaded gun to your head abuse if it doesn't leave a bruise? So to think of trying to actually disclose the reality of what she was living with to someone who's already described um, an act of violence, like taken around out of you, you just really see the environment that she's in. And then as uh, defense lawyer Mona Duckett points out way later in the series, that sets a tone for how she moves through the system. Everything in that interrogation um, sets a tone for herself and then, of course, also sets a tone for the prosecution of where things are going to go as her case gets to charges and punishment. What's Helen charged with? First-degree murder. And as well as a charge around um, offering an indignity to a dead body, which is around the disposal of the body. But the first-degree murder charge, of course, is the most serious. It's arguably the most serious charge you can face in Canadian law. If you're convicted of first-degree murder, that's life in prison with no chance of parole for 25 years. And which, it means that it was premeditated. Yes, and her child, too. Her son was charged. Yes. Neil was also charged with first-degree murder. And then how does it proceed? Tell us, like, where, what does she face? Because the police are just the first stop along the road to what happens. Mm-hmm. You know, the battered woman defense is a defense that is established in Canadian law and has was established in the 1980s, as a matter of fact, in a very famous case called Lavallee. Um, and in the battered woman defense, it recognizes that shooting someone in the back of the head while they're sleeping or while they're walking away can still be self-defense in the context of a domestic violence relationship. Um, traditional self-defense law really was geared towards two men fighting, two men of equal strength. And um, in that case, you have to feel that there's this imminent threat and you also have to act in a way that a reasonable person would find is self-defense. But what was decided in the Lavallee case when it went to the Supreme Court in a decision written by Supreme Court Justice Bertha Wilson, who was Canada's first female Supreme Court justice, really recognizes that the dynamics of a domestic violence relationship are 
far different than that, and that if a woman waits for an imminent threat, <laughs> she's going to be the dead one, um, because usually the male partner has size on their side, they have physical strength on their side, they have a psychological advantage of having um, been the abuser for all of those years. So in those cases, um, the woman is going to be the one who dies. And also that people who are victims of repeated cyclical violence are actually very good predictors of when violence is imminent. Um, and that the reasonable man test doesn't hold because most men have not found themselves in that particular situation. So um, there, there definitely was the possibility of a, a battered wife defense. So um, her first lawyers do see that the battered woman defense is a big issue. And um, her lawyer is going to take her to trial on battered woman. They even practice in a courtroom, empty courtroom, so that she can get used to that environment, so that she's comfortable. And she really trusts him and feels like she's going to go to trial. And he feels really confident that at the end of it, they're going to walk out together and that a jury could find her not guilty. Um, but that lawyer has health problems and has to give up Helen's case. And he recommends a new lawyer in Edmonton. And when he comes on board, he sees it totally differently. And so uh, there's a possible deal with the Crown, a plea for manslaughter that would have an 18-year prison sentence attached. And so Helen had to consider you know, whether or not to take that deal. And I should say, you know, when we're speaking about levers and power against Helen, um, they had two very powerful levers in terms of, am I going to take this deal or not? Um, one of which is the gamble of going to trial could mean life in prison 25 years. And Helen felt certain that for her, that's, you know, that's a death sentence. She would die in custody, given her age and her health and what that would mean for her. Um, and the other lever was even more powerful. Her son. Yeah. Her son and his life. Because they, what were the, what were the, the prosecution offering the son in terms of her own plea bargaining? Yeah. So if she took the deal for manslaughter, 18 years, the life sentence is dropped against her. The life sentence is dropped against Neil. And he's looking at four years. And so that becomes decided. Helen goes to prison. Where do you intersect with this story? How do you get involved? I actually rem I saw it on Twitter. I remember seeing the headline. And I just automatically was really shocked at that sentence, like many other people across the country. Um, but having covered so many domestic homicides, all or nearly all of which involved women as victims, and many other, other kinds of homicides, again, many, many, many of which involved women as victims, as very innocent victims who hadn't done anything, I just was very shocked that this man who had perpetrated, you know, um, a lifetime of abuse against his wife that that she was still facing that term. It immediately struck me as way out of line. And um, I wrote a letter to Helen four days later asking if she would consider telling her story. Because even with the sparest, sparest details on the record, and there was so little, but we knew that there was abuse and that that was admitted, it just seemed so out of line with um, other sentences. And in fact, it, 
as it turns out, it really was. It was way out of line. Why did a judge approve the plea then? Well, that's a good question. I mean, joint submissions where the defense lawyer and the Crown um, come with a deal that they've both agreed to, the idea is that the judge should, in most cases, accept it, um, especially when it's, you know, brought by reasonable, experienced lawyers. Uh, Often, the tension is actually whether the judge will go higher. Sometimes the judge will disagree with the sentence and go higher. But he clearly thought everyone had done a good job on this. I mean, he says that on the record, and he accepts it as it was. And, of course, the idea that he shouldn't have accepted it is one of the legs in what is ultimately an appeal that's filed of that sentence. Because in his, in the judge's uh, orders, he sort of weirdly defends Miles. Yeah, he makes some comments. I guess this is um, part of my own very strong reaction to the sentence. wasn't actually only the amount of time. It was some of the comments the judge made, including, you know, that this happened to uh, a man while he's, you know, sleeping in what should be the safety of his own home. Um, That was a line that really bothered a lot of people and, you know, raises automatically the question about what about Helen's right to be safe in her own home. Reminds you of the judge. She said she should have kept her legs closed. Yeah. I think he was also from Alberta. I think he was. If you're looking for another surprising investigation into the criminal justice system, check out Bear Brook from New Hampshire Public Radio, hosted by me, Jason Moon. Bear Brook is back with an update on our second season. Jason Carroll is serving life in prison for a murder he says he did not commit. Now, the biggest development in the case in 35 years could lead us one step closer to the truth. Listen to the complete second season of Bear Brook, now available wherever you get your podcasts. So what does happen when people start to hear about what happened to Helen? Yeah, so she's sentenced to 18 years. She's in prison. And her first contact is a defense lawyer from Vancouver who wants to appeal Helen's sentence. And she's not sure what to do at that point. She's actually very upset by that. She isn't sure if she made a mistake in taking the deal. And then um, as awareness around the country grows and some people start to get involved and they start urging Helen to appeal. And at some point, she starts to consider it, especially when she feels confident that nothing can change for her youngest son, Neil, and make it worse for him. So um, at that point, defense lawyer Mona Duckett, who's a very well-respected senior defense lawyer in Edmonton, uh, comes on board and she decides to appeal Helen's sentence. And appealing a joint submission is like climbing a mountain. That's how it was described to us. It's very, very difficult. Joint submissions are by their nature, you know, they're put forward, they're accepted by the judge, and they're done. So that was a major, major obstacle. And at that point, that's really where this community response became so powerful. In fact, it was essentially one of the foundations of the appeal was that the sentence was so unfit that it would 
bring the administration of justice into disrepute. So people's anger, people from across the country being angry and outraged that an abused woman would get this amount of time was enough to say this is an unfit sentence, and also that the judge should not have accepted it, and that some of his comments showed some really outdated thinking about um, the abuse of women. So at that point, it goes uh, to the Court of Appeal, and after months of consideration, it is halved to nine years. And then at a certain point after that, Helen starts to go through the regular parole process, which is first unescorted absences, day parole, and then full parole. So you do talk to, you do get to meet Helen. I mean, you really speak to such a large swath of this entire story and all the people that are around her life. But Helen is a very compelling character in a way that isn't the way most compelling characters are where they're they're loud or their presence is, is you know, just in your face. Helen um, is somebody we don't really hear from very often in all of our lives. Um, so what was your impression of Helen? Yeah, I mean, Helen is... Um she described herself to me as someone who likes to hide in the corners. You know, she doesn't want attention. She doesn't, she really didn't want this story to be written about her or this podcast to be made about her. But she did agree to do it because I really believed that her story could help other people and could help to expose some things in the system that I think could be changed um, again, to help other women and other people who have been living with abuse. And she really hoped that too. So even though it was very personally uncomfortable for her, she made this choice. I think it's a very, very courageous choice to open up her life, um, first in a very long print story and in this podcast in, in I think, a very selfless act, actually. Um, Did you have any hope that you might help her? That I would help her personally? Yeah, that maybe there could be appeals or a change in her. Well, by the time we spoke, the appeal had been decided. So I come in, and in fact, even after she decided to speak with me, her lawyer wanted to wait until the full ap appeal period and Supreme Court possible appeal was done so that um, her sentence then was what it was, and that couldn't be changed. So I don't think I particularly had a thought that I was going to alter what would happen. But I did hope that it would, um, I guess, not only help others, but also help her to put it out there. And I knew, I felt I knew how people would respond to it. Um, and to know, to see the reaction of other people who understand who have been there, who support her, who don't think that what she did was wrong and who, who understand, I think has been a really powerful thing. Um, one thing that, that did happen, which I wasn't expecting, is that, you know, um, several months into our interviews and our correspondence, we wrote many, many letters also, um, when she went before the parole board, that she was very, very nervous about going before the parole board. And I remember this conversation, a little bit of it is in the podcast, that I was, I guess, talking to her about what that would be like. She was worried she was just going to freeze and shut down. And I told her, you know, I, I don't think it can be worse than what you've done with me because we did very tough interviews. We did, um, they were 
You know, I think the first interview I did with her was four hours and very, very intense. And I think that in a lot of ways it did, although this wasn't my intent, but I think it helped her that she had gone through that kind of questioning with me that then when she faced the pro board, she was more able to to speak about what she'd been through. And then you get to meet her outside the prison because she gets parole. Mm -hmm. Hi there. <laughs> Hi, Helen. <laughs> Good, how are you? I'm a little better now. Yeah, boy, it's funny, I was saying to my editor, and I was telling him we were gonna stop in and see you, and I was said, like, this is the first time I'm gonna see you in real life. Yeah. <laughs> you look lighter and happy, yeah, it's much, just like... Much, much lighter. It's so wonderful to see you out here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Talk about that. Yeah, it, we stopped in to see her at work, one of her first days at work. I had seen her in prison um, twice, well, three times when we went to take photos. We wrote. We weren't really allowed to speak by phone. The prison never approved me to be on her phone list. But um, once when she got out on a day pass, she called me from her sisters, and then I got to see her when she was back at work. And um, I mean, this is not unique only to Helen. People who have been into prison facilities before will recognize this with many people. I mean, it is a horrible place to be, and um, people are not happy to be there obviously. And so to see Helen out, it honestly, the word that I that I can think is just lighter. She just looked like a different person almost. And I think to be out in the world and to also have experienced some of the reaction to see people again in the community um, and, and really to know that she's now free, honestly, for the first time in her life that she um, is free was pretty profound. Thing. Also, she loves to work. So she was really happy to be back at work. One of the biggest things that that she hated about being in prison was she was so bored and there wasn't enough for her to do. And she's just way happier when she's working. So I think happy in in many, many ways out there. How's her and her family now? I mean, so much happened. Uh, is she speaking to all of her children? Where Where is she with that? Yeah, I think, you know, having the podcast out has been an intense thing. And also Helen is still in the process of getting her feet underneath of her out in the world. Um, she was living with her sister and she's just gotten her own place. And so I think she's taking things really slow, but I think she's doing really well. And it really has meant a lot to her, the kind of response. I have sent her several batches of emails that I've gotten the ones that specifically talk about Helen, about what her story has meant to them, you know, the number of people who write to me to say, this could be about my life um, is is really stunning. And I, I think that means a lot to Helen to know that putting herself out there <laughs> has actually had the effect that we hoped it would, that is comforting people and... Um, leading people to think about some of these systems, the legal system in a different way and ways that it is working against um, survivors like Helen and working against women. Um, you know, I think that her relationship with Daryl, that's a really that's a really tough one, you know. 
I'm not sure what will happen with that. And um, but I hope all of them can can move forward in a positive way from here. Does she feel like it it might help people? I think she does because of the response from people. You know, I mean, some of these letters, they're so heartfelt. And and also hearing from professionals who see what they can do differently in the system, from from advocates who see areas that they can make change, and that um, the next case that comes up like this, because they're rare, but they do happen, of battered woman self-defense, that maybe um, that woman will go through the courts in a different way or find different supports to ha- because there are so many other people now who are more aware of this issue, who m- are more aware of the defenses, and who are more aware even of how to raise their voices and, and change the situation for the woman. I mean, that's one of the things that that I find truly amazing about Helen's story is that, you know, she's <laughs> she's sentenced 18 years, she's in prison, she's hopeless, she has no hope. And then outside, all these people start seeing this is wrong. And some of those people are, you know, pretty socially powerful people. There's Senator Kim Pate, there's defense lawyers, um, there's experts, Elizabeth Sheehy, who wrote the book Defending Battered Women on Trial. Then there's also a lot of just everyday people who wrote letters to Helen in prison and, you know, shared their own experience, became supports for her. There's people who signed petitions. There's people who posted on social media, you know, with I stand with Helen signs. And what was so amazing to me is that all of those people played a really important role. It wasn't only you know, the socially powerful people that made this change. It was everybody. The people who wrote to Helen, I think, gave Helen the confidence to be able to go ahead with an appeal, to trust that maybe something could be better for her and that maybe she deserves better from the system. And so when we look at, you know, how systems can work against people, we also see how communities can change systems. And in a way, I think that Almost the whole message of the podcast happens in like the last five seconds after the credits in the final episode with a quote from Supreme Court Justice Bertha Wilson, where she says that, you know, basically the law doesn't want to change. It responds to changes in society. It seldom initiates them. And to me, that that's the most powerful message is that we know that some of these systems were geared towards certain populations. They were made for, you know, white men primarily, and that to change it so that it's more equitable for everybody, we have to fight for that, all of us, in whatever, you know, <laughs> whatever way that, that you can in the, what you do. Well, and what you did went a long way to helping it, too. And I'm going to ask you one last question. So you have been telling these stories, but through print for all these years. This is your first audio project. How did you enjoy it? Or what did you feel was different about the way that you could tell this this story? Yeah, I loved it. I really loved it. Um, and one of the things, you know, when when I was reporting this story for print and we didn't know for sure that it was going to be a podcast, um, Kasia Mihailovich, who uh, was 
producer of the Decibel, the Globe's Daily podcast, was taking on a role doing a narrative podcast for the Globe. So I had pitched several stories, and one possibility was Helen, but we didn't know for sure it was going to go ahead. But we decided in those early interviews to um, have someone come along and get good audio so the option would be available to us for sure. So Amber Bracken, who's a wonderful photographer in this country, um, did double duty and recorded good audio for me. But what I realized really early on, speaking to Helen, speaking to Wes, um, was really how powerful this audio was going to be. And I, especially after um, Helen and Wes's interviews, I just thought, okay, this this has to be a podcast. This has to be an audio because I found their voices so powerful. I found that they expressed themselves in such a profound way that I didn't want to mediate it at all. I wanted people to hear them. I wanted to hear what was in their voices. And that's the same with Helen's friends, her um, family, her sister Sharon. And so, um, yeah, I just knew then it had to be an audio, and I'm so glad it was. It's been interesting to see the response from people, even people who read the print story. And the print story was was very successful. It won awards. You know, it's a um, long-form story, and I'm, I'm quite proud of it. But it's interesting to see from people, even who read both, that one of the first things they say is, it's just so amazing to hear Helen's voice. And to me, that was a really profound and beautiful thing to have her voice out there, literally her speaking for herself and telling her story with as little mediation from me as, as possible. Thank you for your work. I think it was a great podcast and a really important one. So thanks a lot. And thanks for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Crime Story from CBC Podcasts. We drop a new episode every Monday. You can get our next episode a week early on CBC Podcasts' YouTube channel or by subscribing to the CBC Podcasts True Crime channel on Apple Podcasts. In addition to early access, subscribers to our True Crime channel also listen ad-free. Crime Story is written and hosted by me. Our producers are Alexis Green and Sarah Clayton. Sound design by Graham McDonald. Our senior producer is Jeff Turner. Our video producer is Evan Agard. Our YouTube producer is John Lee. Executive producers are Cecil Fernandez and Chris Oak. Tanya Springer is CBC Podcast Senior Manager, and Arif Narani is the director of CBC Podcasts. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.